on. It's from the 80s. Okay, if you haven't watched it and you don't want to hear like what I'm going to say, put your fingers in your ears, okay? Because it's a good movie. Um, so Goldie Hawn is in the movie. She's a wealthy, shallow, self-centered woman, basically in the story, who ends up losing her memory, ends up in a family with a dad and I think it's three kids, and they manage to convince her that she's their mother, basically so they can get the housework done, okay, and look after the kids. And, and, and the movie is all about how she learns to love and care and, res- and gets the respect of the family back. But, you know, the catch is she does eventually get her memory back. And, and, and that's the punchline. What happens when she gets her memory back? And it's not quite the parable that we heard today, because it's a, like a two-hour movie, but it is the same story of redemption when she finally comes to realize the life she had led and the life she could lead, and she goes back to the family and they welcome her. Wonderful story. And, you know, when you think about it in that context, a really, really powerful message. I want to look at the gospel story today to understand Jesus' message and decide whether this first century parable actually has a 21st century meaning. Now, it's the third of a series of three Gospels that start the 15th chapter of Luke. So we we start at the beginning with a couple of verses that explain that Jesus is talking to Pharisees and scribes, and then we jump into into the parable. And knowing that they're Pharisees and scribes is important to to the the message that's coming across. Because they were responding to Jesus and grumbling about tax collectors and sinners and the fact that he, he associated with them and ate with them. But before we I go any further, I want to explain a cultural context at the time that's really, really important to understand the message in the sermon. And that is, back then, the ancient world kind of viewed people's status in different terms than we do today. So society today, we look at people that have lots of money and lots of possessions, and we think, oh, that's a successful person, successful woman. Look at, look at, look at what she's managed to, to do with her life. But back then, they didn't use money in that sense. They used honor. Honor and shame were the pluses and minuses to a person's reputation. Okay? And, and when I say reputation, that's important because character talks about who you are. Reputation is what other people think you are. Okay? So honor, shame was all about your reputation. It was all about what people thought of you. So that's a bit of a foreign concept to us. But it's important because the Pharisees and scribes that were listening to Jesus talk, that's the way they understood sort of how you measure people. And, and for them, this story of, of, of the lost son would have been a bizarre, unbe- unbelievable, and almost incomprehensible story of shame for the father. Incomprehensible. Why anyone would put up with what that father had to put up with. Take, for example, when Colin asked Stephen for half of his inheritance. Um, I mean, the son asked the father for half of his inheritance, right? 
sons inherited when parents died. For a son to go to the father and ask for half of his inheritance while his dad was still living was basically telling the father, I wish you were dead. That's, that's in effect what that parable uh, was saying. That's what an, a first century Christian would understand or a Pharisee or scribe. I want what's coming to me and I want it now. And that's really a violation of the commandment to honor your father and your mother. And no precedent, no precedent in Jewish society for this, like totally outside of the pale. And the Pharisees listening would have expected the father to do something, some public action to preserve his honor against his son. But instead, after being publicly embarrassed by his son, he gives him half of his estate and lets the son go. And then the rebellion continues. So acting quickly, the son sells off everything, takes his money, and leaves. So he gives up. Like he not only asks his dad for half his inheritance, but he sells half of the family estate that his dad had, had built up for the family. Like another, piling on the shame on top. He's rejecting his family. And for the family, it's as if the younger son had died. I mean, he'd basically let, let them. Society would not have expected the relationship between the son and the father to ever continue. Instead, um, he lets the son go. But what ends up is the son is in a foreign country so destitute that the son ends up feeding pigs for a Gentile. Now, you can imagine in a Jewish context, that's probably the worst thing that could happen if you're still alive, right? You're feeding pigs. And you, you're worried about eating, and you're thinking of eating the food that they give to pigs, right? Because you can't eat the pigs. You're just looking after pigs for someone else. It's terrible. So he's also at the lowest of the lows. His on, like He doesn't have any honor, basically. It's gone. No honor. Total shame. Now, he's at that point when he decides to go back to his dad. No, no honor, total shame, realizing that if he's going to actually be able to survive and get some food, he's got to go back to his father. And he, he, he knows that his father treats his hired servants better than he's being treated. So even that kind of a relationship with his father would be better than where he was. It's, it's hard to imagine a greater fall in status for the son, but to come back to his family and hope that he can be hired as a hired servant, not, not, not be there as a son. Now, the Pharisees and scribes would believe that returning to his father would mean ridicule, mockery, disdain. I mean, not only for the son, but for the father. Okay, So he's publicly disdained dishonored his dad and he wants to come back like that's even more dishonor so they're expecting some reaction from the father against the son to protect his honor but instead the son as he's coming up the road finds his is seen by his father at a distance who runs to meet him now it may not seem such a big deal to us because when Kids get off a school bus and you see them come into your house, you run down to meet them. But 
in those days and age, that day and age, you know, they wear robes. You'd have to lift your robes up to be able to run, and you'd see their feet and their legs. And that is another thing that increases shame in that society. So it just keeps piling on and on and on. So in this parable, Jesus is creating this insurmountable amount of shame that, that the father is willing to accept and the son has experienced. And, and what happens is that the father reaches the son, puts his arms around him, and welcomes him. And not only that, in his conditions of filth and dirt from the road, he puts on a robe and a ring and welcomes him in, kills the fatted calf, and decides to have a party. Now, with that embrace, the father offers full reconciliation. No shame for the son. The father's taken it all. The son's welcomed back and, and into the family, and all the son had to do was entrust himself to the mercy of his father and receive that grace. He doesn't have to earn reconciliation. It's freely given. Not only that, but when he put that ring on his finger, rings weren't just for looks. Rings represented the authority the authority of the father to stamp the family symbol on wax documents, like the wax on a document, it's, it's, it's more than just reconciliation. It's full acceptance back into the family. And then the father celebrated, right? Big party. The son that was dead returned. It was a special occasion. They didn't, meet, eat, they didn't eat meat every day. And a calf could feed 200 people, so he didn't just kill a calf any old time in the week. So to the Pharisees and, and scribes, this whole story would have been so totally bizarre that someone who'd suffered such shame would be celebrating and taking all that and, and, and the public humiliation and yet celebrate. But then that's the point. No one would act this way in normal society, but kingdom life is different. So the, the parable doesn't spend as much time on the, on the older son. But he clearly has issues too. He doesn't appear to have a very good relationship with his father. You know, he's out working in the fields and he finds out about the party from a servant. So he's obviously not on good speaking terms with his dad. You'd think that the son and the father working together, they'd be like this, you know, looking after the family farm. And instead, you get this confrontation when the, when the father comes out and the, young, and the older son is basically telling him off. I mean, he's, he's breaking the, the commandment to honor father and mother as well in the way that he's speaking to his dad. It's, it's, it's hard to believe that anyone talking to their dad in the first century would recognize, that way would recognize that there's a good relationship between the father and the son. So even though the older son did not leave home to squander his relationship with his dad. He did the same thing out in the field, in the house, with his dad right there. So we have two sons, both of whom are estranged from their dad. And, you know, on the surface, it's a story about a father and two sons. But we know 
that Jesus was talking to Pharisees and scribes about tax collectors and sinners. And, 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 and the backstory here is that the tax collectors and sinners are like the younger son. The Pharisees and scribes are like the older son. And both of those sons have issues that they need to deal with to be reconciled with the father. They're both called to repent. So, it's, and there's more to this story than just a simple message about God accepting all sorts of people, no matter what, or how badly they act. You know, they've sinned. The important truth it reveals, actually, is not about the sons at all. It's about the father. And how we relate to the father. You see, God seeks to save the lost sinner who comes to him. Even the worst sinner you could possibly imagine. God initiates. God is a seeker. God sees us before we see him. God finds us before we find him. God runs to meet and accept us. And God's love is generous. God's grace is limitless. And God finds his joy when his family grows by the salvation of one lost sinner. And isn't that a wonderful vision of our God? A God so eager and so enthusiastic, so generous and so loving as the worst, to the worst possible sinner? And a God so happy when one sinner repents? Now, this story that we had today stopped without resolution for the elder brother. But I could imagine if the, in, at the, the ending, if the elder brother sought compassion, mercy, and reconciliation from his father, that the father would embrace him, welcome him, and celebrate him, and seat him at the table too with his other brother. The question is, do you recognize the characteristics of these sons in your life? The prodigal child, the repentant sinner, a child who knows his father but has no relationship with him. You know, these sons represent two extremes. But that's, that's really good news for all of us that are in between. God welcomes all who repent. His grace is available to everyone. And when we repent, God will welcome us into his family as beloved sons and daughters. Thanks be to God. Amen.